that remembers that Johnny Griggs still hasn't released a follow-up to If You Go Away, his vocal version of the El Dorado theme. I'm Stephen O'Brien, and returning to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer and occasional broadcaster Tim Worthington. Tim, what are you up to, and where can we find it? Well, by the time this goes out, I should have just self-published a book called Can't Help Thinking About Me, which is a bit different to my previous books because there's some there's some old articles in it, some new ones. But what I've done is I put a lot of context around them, explaining how and why I came to be interested in things, how I came to write things. There's stories about everything from when I used to hide outside the room until being assured that the test card wasn't on, through things like somebody punched me coming out of Rocky Four singing Eye of the Tiger, which isn't the right Survivor <laughs> song with the right Rocky film. All kinds of things like that, all kinds of background details, some new bits, some stuff that's never been seen before. And basically there's sex, drugs, rock and roll and ski boy and that's the best combination you can have really. And of course you can find that at timworthington.org, which you probably know already because you're listening to this. Having read an initial draft, it is a really interesting book. And I think what you've been able to do is to fuse the context of the things you're talking about with your own life and your own take on it. So I think it's a really interesting take on things. Did you find that quite a departure from what you've done before? Well, I did, but it's kind of what I've got to do in this as well, because it's interesting to be on the other side of, well, not the other side of the fence, the other side of the microphone, for once, I suppose. The thing is, in typical Tim Worthington fashion, you have picked the most obscure things anybody could ever pick. So myself as a host, it's been really difficult to get any background on half of these things, but that's never stopped me before. So I suppose let's start. And this is a musical choice. And it's quite going back in some time to the career of a former Rasmataz presenter. called The Only Way by Lisa Stansfield. And I'm convinced I'm the only person that actually remembers this from the time because there is a sort of myth that Lisa Stansfield just appeared from nowhere in, I think, 1989 with This Is The Right Time and obviously all around the world and so on after that. But if you grew up in the Northwest, she'd actually been being pushed for about 10 years before that because yeah. she had a lot of singles like this. Like you say, she presented Rasmataz, which... What's that fully networked? It was an ITV pop show that she presented for a while. She was always on things like Granada Report. She had, at one point, she had a band called, I think they were called Blue Zone, who were actually, they were going for a couple of years and they were reasonably, not stars, but reasonably well known. That's right. I think if I'm right, her now husband was in the band and he's continued to be her main songwriter 
through a solo career. I thought you'd say he continued to be in Blue Zone on his home, <laughs> and that would be quite good. But the only way, which obviously doesn't sound much like anything she's known for, I particularly remember because it got a lot of airplay on regional Manchester, Liverpool, Northwest radio stations with presenters saying, we, we wish her a lot of luck, she's a local lass there singing. <laughs> and the main reason I remember it is it sounds incredibly like the theme from Starfleet, which is a redubbed Japanese <laughs> animated puppet show that was, well, as opposed to all those non-animated puppet shows, but that was on ITV around that time. I think it ran for half a year, yeah, didn't it? And they showed it a couple of times. It certainly felt like yeah. it. <laughs> One episode feels like half a year these days, but it sounded incredibly like that, which is a quite a thing for me, because at that point, the single version by Brian May and Eddie Van Halen hadn't come out. And I loved the theme from Starfleet. I think more than loved the programme, if I'm being honest about That's it. Fair. So there was this record that was a bit like it. So that kind of, whenever it was on the radio, I sort of imagined, you know, Shiro, Lee, and Barry Hercules <laughs> going into Diex and it turning into the big red robot and smashing all the alien spaceships. Thing is, though, when you look back at it now, I'm not 100% sure of how old Lisa Stansfield was when this came out. I think she may have just been 16, if that. And I know she's said since that she's disowned those early records because I don't like the fact she didn't say more than this. She said, I didn't like the way I was packaged and promoted. And, you know, just kind of on the cover, you know, uh, it's like an 80s sexy image you know, with bunched up hair and so on. But... Something feels a bit distasteful about it. It's like it's a song from the point of view of a slightly older woman, I think. I, I, actually, when I listened back to it for this, I wasn't that taken with it for a number of reasons. It's funny, I know what you mean about the front cover. There is that sort of kind of, as you described it, sexy 80s pose. But given how young Lisa Sandfield must have been at the time, there is that kind of discord there, isn't there, in the way it's portrayed. I think my view of the record is... It almost sounds a bit like Kim Wilde doing ABBA, or in fact, ABBA doing Kim Wilde. Um, <laughs> it's a fine line between the two. <laughs> it probably is, but I mean, I thought they had quite a catchy chorus, very much of its time, and quite a departure from what came later, most notably with the voice as well. You can hear the, the early signs of that powerful voice that came later, mm. but it, obviously... It does be like her age, as, you, as you've referred to. Yeah. You know, there is a whole thing of early records that people disown. I mean, I must be the only person who likes Pop is Dead by Radiohead, which is the, funnily enough, the one Radiohead single that doesn't sound like them. <laughs> but there is, it is quite odd when entire pre-fame parts of their career get erased from history. I mean, the big one for me, although it seems to be picking up some recognition now, is David Bowie's 60s material for a long time. That was just sort of, not even mocked, just put to one side as if kind of, we'd better not draw attention to that. And even now, the first album isn't in these box sets that are coming out, which annoys me intensely, which is one of several reasons why I've not bought any of them. But, you know, it is quite odd that you can you can struggle for years and years to get a break. I don't think that's something that really happens now. I think the whole fame machine works much more quickly. I think, you know, everybody's after the instant success, but... Years ago, somebody like Lisa Stanfield could be around for about 10 years before they had any Absolutely. success and leave behind records like this. So The other thing, interesting thing about this is that the team who wrote and produced the track don't seem to have really done anything else no. beyond Lisa Stansfield or, or their certain material. And these sessions, as you say, were released in the mid-90s, weren't they? Yeah. In an album. There's something like 14 or 16 tracks all by the same people. But it's just fascinating that 
they, they didn't go on to do anything else. You just wonder, was it a local team, sort of up up north, mm. who had a recording studio? That kind of thing. I thought that was interesting. Well, the 80s was the time, like you say, of the, of the production team being a thing. Sometimes being more famous than the artists they work with, I think. But obviously it didn't work for these guys. No, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've exhausted The Only Way by Lisa Stansfield. Other Lisa Stansfield tracks are available. <laughs> and now it's a trip across the channel and back in time to 1969. <laughs> called Le Curveau, but it, I know it as The Brain. It's a sort of weird French-American co-production from, as I say, 1969. A very bizarre thing. As I'll come back to, it was actually made in English, but for an international market, so that had all kinds of unusual effects on it. But it stars David Niven as a master criminal who absconds from jail. He's one of the cleverest people in the world, but He's so clever that whenever he thinks of a brilliant idea, his brain gets really heavy and his head falls to the side. So there's all kinds of odd sequences of, you know, the police chasing him while he's got his head on his shoulder. He's assisted by two French criminals played by Jean-Paul Belmondo, without his face painted for once, which is a turn up for the books. And a guy called, I've always loved this, he's just called Borville. And in the opening <laughs> time, you know, he's got all these, like, dramatic close-ups, you know, uh, David Niven in a sort of kind of modified Second World War helmet and, you know, Jean-Paul Belmondo pulling his I am cleverer than you face. And then Borville just looks like this kind of like, I don't know, sort of rat-faced, weird, down and out. <laughs> he just comes forward <laughs> dramatically. It sounds as though that doesn't fit, but it really fits the mood of this film because it is so bizarre. It's one of those late 60s sort of post-Avengers, private eye, semi-spoofs, but trying to be not a spoof at the same time. And it's... It's very strange. The, the really weird thing about it is, because of its origins, the theme song is by the American Breed, who were uh, an American garage sort of psych band. Who they were the ones who first did "Bend Me, Shape Me" before Armin Corner did. But the song's been written by people involved with the film, and so the lyrics are in English. But English is a second language, basically. Oh, right, okay. I mean, the, the bits that stand out for me are. The couple of, who's got a computer for a mind, who's got an IQ like an Einstein. <laughs> Not Einstein, an Einstein. So it could be Ian Einstein, his brother. And the other one is, there's a handsome price on his handsome head. I think they'd like to brainwash the brain for good things instead. I do think that theme tune is breathtaking. It's absolutely fantastic. It always is brilliant. And that little refrain, the brain. Yeah. <laughs> that ties in with the reason I discovered it was... I mean, there are so many films of a similar vintage, of a similar style, that have these amazing theme songs. And they used to be on, in kind of the early to mid-80s, BBC One on, I think it was a Tuesday night, would always show some weirded out 60s film at about 7pm. 
Remember, you know, sometimes it'd be something like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Sometimes it'd be this, or Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, or I remember A Guide for the Married Man, the Walter Matthau comedy with the turtles doing the theme tune. Fathom, which people think I'm making this up, it's Raquel Welsh and Richard Briers as a crime-fighting team. And, you know, he's basically Martin from Emerson Priest's Turtles in trendier gear, and she's wearing an astonishing lime green bikini that... Obviously, that was on all the film posters, and you do wonder how it is. There was so little of it, how it is staying on her. But as well, that had a brilliant soundtrack by Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane, as did another one from this era, Modesty Blaze, which, again, you know, that suffers from being a, I think it's an Italian and British co production, and it's got that same English as a second language thing. But I can't fathom, well, fathom, why all these films were on in this time slot. I remember them being the talk of the playground the next day, but then everyone else forgot about them. But then I remembered things, you know, I remembered them years later, and obviously over the years, you know, I remember recording A Guide for the Married Man off uh, repeat on Channel 4, I found Gidget on VHS, all kinds of things like that. The brain was the elusive one, and I knew I hadn't imagined it, but there was no evidence of it out there. Of course, it wasn't in Halliwell's film guide, because you know, sort of think he'd turn his nose up. Well, if it's yeah. there, it didn't exist. <laughs> but anywhere else you looked, of course it was under Le Curvo, and I didn't yeah, think of, of that. I was looking for the brain, and then found it. So the brain was so clever. It must hide the film, but his head must have been right on the shoulder by then. That was one of the things that really got me into off-the-wall cinema, was... Seeing all these really... I'm sure they weren't that successful when they were released, but seeing them all on the BBC in a congruous time slot, and that really did have quite an effect on me. It's funny because until you raised it, to my shame, I'd never heard or seen Le Corbeau or The Brain. And obviously I'm quite a fan of films of that period. Yeah. I did find the clip. The first clip I actually found uh, before I found the trailer and the theme tune was... um, a clip where um, one of the female characters in a bikini. In oh, a you villa. don't say. But you'll understand what I'm getting to. So <laughs> the crims plus the brain are sort of hold out with some kind of villa in the south of France, I assume. This female character in a bikini sort of swings down from a balcony to the tune of some French 60s pop, showers herself and gets all the guys worked up, including the brain. As I watched it, I thought, if you could plug a TV into Tim Worthington's brain. That's probably what it would look like. Well, I'll, I'll try and take that as a compliment. No, I know. I'm being slightly, slightly flippant there, but I think in one sense, it does bring a lot of your genuine interest mm. to bear. Obviously, very attractive women, French pop in the 60s, caper movies, etc. So I think, you know, with the, mm. that's where we got from it. So when I saw the clip, I thought... I'm not surprised he's chosen this, quite frankly. Well, to concentrate on the more family-friendly side of that equation just for a second, it is interesting how... I don't know how many other people felt this, but I found French pop culture, particularly from the 60s, really exotic and intriguing when I was young because it was something that was almost on our doorstep but was completely inaccessible, sort of not known about. And obviously, I'd like the magic roundabout from a young age, but I started to discover all these films and people like Francois Hardy... Serge Gansburg, and it was odd because it's like an alternate universe version of the 60s as it's presented to you when people say, oh, Sergeant Pepper and uh, Blue Peter when they used to do the makes, you know, however people, I know people don't really go on that psychedelic Blue Peter, but you know what I mean? It's seeing those familiar tropes, those familiar ingredients through another angle, which 
brings me round to... I'll admit, when I was a kid, I used to find... you remember this as well. Sometimes there'd be a problem with the transmitter, the BBC transmitter, and you get BBC Wales instead. Yeah. And I used to find it, when I was really young, a bit frightening, you know, people talking in... It's I didn't understand what it was. Yeah. But then that later it became, became to become intrigued by BBC Wales because, again, it's like an alternate reality version of life as we know. Particularly, I saw a couple of years ago, there was a 50 Years of BBC Wales documentary where it had things that was basically like the Welsh top of the pops, the Welsh brass eye, you know, all <laughs> kinds of things like this. It's just so, so odd that, you know, the same experience goes on. Well, probably not everywhere, but, you know, I'm not sure what life was like behind the Iron Curtain in the 60s. <laughs> the 70s but you know it's the same experiences but just refracted to a slightly different kind of perspective i really want to see the welsh welsh brass eye now to go <laughs> it's, it's called it's called the owen money show that's a pun that doesn't actually work in welsh though does it well from bbc wales to bbc one and we're actually going to sort of travel to the distant future now with the help of a very unusual Japanori. Four children have escaped a tired, depleted Earth in a homemade spaceship. It is a desperate attempt to find their parents who are working to establish a new settlement on a distant planet. Unbelievably, Starstorm proves spaceworthy and at last the children are on their way. But just as everything is going smoothly, the Starstormers encounter the Glory Ark, an early emigrant ship whose passengers seem to worship their captain as a god. And there is something strange about him. Is there any connection with the terrifying stories the children have heard about the Octopus Emperor, a ferocious predator who seizes spaceships for his own sinister ends? Soon their worst fears are confirmed. Starstormer herself is under invasion. So Tim, explain to us what the lovely Emma was reading out there. Okay, well that was Emma Burnell, previous guest on this show, reading out a bit of the back cover blurb from Starstormers, which is a book by Nicholas Fisk, which I think is forgotten enough on its own but the reason I picked this isn't because of the book it's because it was once on Jack and Ori in the very early 80s and I remember it distinctly because you know the usual thing of Jack and Ori was there'd be a person reading the story to camera and you'd sometimes get an illustration maybe a photo with it was always bloody violin playing over it with a photo but this was a full cast adaptation with kids playing the Starstormers because I've got to be honest, it's not a great science fiction novel because don't they buy an asteroid and hollow it out and turn it into a spaceship and fly off in it? So, yeah. you know, even, even Galloping Galaxy has had its science better down than that. But it was a full cast adaptation. But for years, whenever I mentioned it, nobody, believe me, even though I think there were tie-in editions of the books that had the kids on the cover. And you were one of the only other yeah, people yeah. I knew that remembered it. I remember once having an argument on an archive TV forum about it where somebody was just insistent on saying, no, 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 no. I didn't see it, but I'm sure it was just people pointing torches at paintings. It's like, no, it was a full cast adaptation. I remember it was episodic, it was serialised. No, I'm sure, I'm sure it would have been just torches on paintings. And someone who I didn't know at the time this year appeared and said, <laughs> I remember it as well, shut up. <laughs> I, what I remember is, as you say, Tim, it, it was a full cast and acted mm. out. And it was kind of interspersed by the narration, wasn't that? Yeah, who was that? Now, in the distant depths of my memory, I think it might have been the author, Nicholas Fisk. But I might be wrong on that one. I just have, seem to have a feeling it was him at the time, but might be wrong. Shall we check live on BBC Genome and see if we can... Yeah, let's, let's <laughs> check it out. Oh, well, it says here it was narrated by Eric Deacon. You ever heard of him? No. No? I don't know who that is. Sorry, Eric, if you're listening, if you're listening, but 
Yeah, I mean, <coughs> but you're right because obviously Nicholas Fisk has obviously become quite established by that point as, as a children's author. So about 1918, I think he did write a book called Was it Grinny? Grinny. There was Trillions as well. It's nothing yeah. to do with Trillion from Hitchhiker's Guide, wasn't it? Lots of different aliens fell to Earth. Yeah. yeah. Did he later write uh, Monster Maker, which was made into a TV one-off by Jim Henson? Yes, he did, yes, yeah. yeah. So obviously that was his kind of thing, merging mm. sort of children's lives with science fiction or, or, or the fantastic. You know, I think, as you say, Star Summers probably wasn't the most original of things because obviously it was a bit of a rush post-Star Wars of science fiction in that, in that way. But I clearly do remember the TV tie-in books, Tim, absolutely. Well, I, I'm going to be charitable here and say I kind of think, not just him, a couple of authors like him, their books were kind of sci-fi for kids who didn't want to read sci-fi. Yes. It wasn't, it didn't, you know, you didn't have to be familiar with the setup of the genre. It, you didn't have to use your mind beyond understanding the story, you know. It wasn't wasn't like season 18 of Doctor Who, you know. <laughs> it's funny you say that because... One of the clear memories I have of watching Jack and Ori Starstormers is, is that the whole sort of visual template mm. was very much like season 18. Yes. <laughs> now, obviously, it was contemporaneous, yeah. but that was that kind of feel, I guess. They had quite natty uniforms, I seem to remember. Yeah. Like, kind of bold colours with metallic bits on. I think that the Raider had one as well. That's right. Yeah. He was dressed up in that garb as well. Yeah. Old Eric. Jack and Ori's come up on here a couple of times before, and there were kind of unusual diversions from the, the normal I mean the one that everyone seems to remember is when they did The Hobbit in I think it was I think they repeated it a few times but I think it might have originally been 1979 but it was four storytellers sat around a campfire you know they sometimes did something different and I don't know why it was so rare that they did perhaps in some cases with budgetary in mm. some cases they might have just thought well let's just try and do something new to shake things up captivate mm. viewers in a different way, it's I don't know. But... Possible, but I don't. I had often wondered if Starstormers was actually set for a proper adaptation and part way through production. They thought, <laughs> yeah, no, let's let's put this away somewhere. I'll just see if we can find out who any of the cast were because I'm wondering who they were. Rachel Duncan Sutherland as Vaughan. Don't know who she is. Gordon Hagen as Mackenzie. I always loved that one. It was called Mackenzie. I specs James Downer, Sue Pamela R. Young. No, I don't, I don't no. recognise any of them. And I used to watch a lot of kids' dramas, so what else did any of them do? Maybe they produced daily material for Lisa Stansfield. <laughs> it's quite possible. <laughs> but it, it is a thing about, you did, because, you know, if you liked space and things like that, there was only, Doctor Who was only on at certain times of the year, Ditto yeah. Blake 7, there might be a shorter run thing the American things because they were shoved around the schedule so much by ITV you didn't often get to see them yeah, I think when you were on, we talked about how haphazard Space 1999 yeah, was. Absolutely. And how, you know, you never, you know, you just like <laughs> randomly be walking down the street, and, you know, you pass a TV store and the Space 1999 would be under the window. Oh no, I've got to get yeah. home. But you had to take whatever genre thought you could find. And I might be mocking the Jack and Oi Starstormers, but at the time I'm sure I was thinking, yes, Space Thing is on. Let's get in and watch it. I think at that time, I think you're right, anything was between science fiction or, or fantasy or something similar. It was relatively few and far between, especially when you look at now in recent years. Obviously, Doctor Who sort of created a bit of a, a mini-boom, at least in the terrestrial channels. That may, may have subsided a little bit in recent years, but certainly Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc. has been a real boom. So there's, there's more around now than people can feasibly watch. But you're right, Tim, where mm. in our formative years... 
you kind of had to make do with what you got. Yeah, and that's why none of you bastards watched Prime Evil and they got cancelled. <laughs> yeah. I'm not Who bitter is. about that. Okay then, so again, going back to my earlier comment around how obscure your choices were, <laughs> you picked a public information film. I went on the web, on, on the web thinking every bloody public information film is on there, I'll find mm-hmm. it. Could I find this one? There were three of them in a boat. Mac, Mac's son Ian, and Ian's friend Duncan. It was a calm day at first. Right, Tim, that was Phil explaining a very, what can I say, underappreciated, if that's the right word. No, that's not the right word. <laughs> no, that was, uh, that was, again, former guest Phil Catterall reading out a bit of the script of, it's burnt into my memory, this. I call it There Were Three of Them in a Boat, which is a public information film I only ever saw because I think some of them were region-specific because, you know, it was no good showing... One's about farming, you know, dangers of playing on farm to us because we lived in, you know, the the battered industrial north <laughs> on the banks of the Mersey. But when we used to visit some relatives who lived in the more coastal location, this seemed to be on all the time. And it was like you just heard just I remember it so clearly it was there were three of them in a boat. Mac, Mac's son Ian, and Ian's friend Duncan. It was a calm day at first. You didn't see them. You saw the edge of the boat. You saw the sea. You saw the weather getting into trouble. The bit I remember really clearly was the only problem was Duncan couldn't swim. And then you saw the edge of the boat and like bubbles next to it. And said, by the time they realised what was happening, it was too late. You know, it went on and on about them trying to survive in the raging sea. And then it cut to sort of a beach in the morning with sun coming up, like birds twittering. And it said, Mark and Ian were both strong swimmers. But they never made it to shore. And then there was a warning at the end about, you know, make sure you pay heed to the forecast, you take life jackets and all that. I just remember being, it was really weird. It was like a, almost like a horror film, the way it was shot. Although you didn't see them. That made it scarier. But there's no trace of it out there. I can't even find people discussing it anywhere. I think the only other person... I've spoken to who remembers it existing is Phil Norman from TV Cream who remembers everything. So it's weird that it's just disappeared completely. I, I don't recall this one. I've never seen it. I mean, from the description you've given, it does sound quite terrifying. And I think if I go by your sort of copy of, of the narration, I think that's the thing. There's that discord in a lot of public information films, mm. isn't there, between the kind of the horror, the natural horror mm. of the subject matter. Yeah. And the almost calm, pedestrian way the narration kicks in, at least, but mm. sometimes how they're filmed. You know, if you, if you think about the spirit of the dark and only water, mm. obviously Donald Pleasance's narration, yeah. obviously it's spooky, mm. but in some ways it's spooky because it's almost so pedestrian. Yeah, it's like it's like they don't care about what's happening yeah. or what they're warned about. That detachment. And yeah. the, the thing it was reminded me of, again, something that really spooked me as a kid, was a Cardiac Arrest by Madness, which is a song in dubious taste anyway. Yeah. But at the end of the go, we're so sorry, we told you not to worry. That's kind of as if they're like, yeah, we're washing our hands of you, mate, having sung about your your predicament for a whole song, you know, when I'm not that bothered. And then, it's, that, is, that is quite unsettling in a way. It's almost like a pole at the end of the Wicker Man, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to die, but we'll sing about it. Yeah, it's... Um, and sorry for the spoiler, anybody who's listening. No, do you remember when we went to see The Wicker Man on the big screen with our mate Jim? And I we'd do. all been obsessed with The Wicker Man oh, for a long course, time. Yeah. Oh. That time when we saw it, at the end, Jim just paused for a second and said, he could easily have pushed Lord somewhere all over that cliff. 
<laughs> that's ruined it forever now because it's true you could say oh well he couldn't because he's a good Christian man and all that like no stand up for yourself Sergeant Howie this is ridiculous am I misremembering this or was there some nervous laughter when that scene played out in the, in the cinema or was that just us <laughs> <laughs> I do remember somebody bursting out laughing when I went to see Pulp Fiction when they it's not even when they jab the syringe into me with Thurman's heart it's before that when she looks like she's dead somebody laughed Blimey. my tale like that is I remember I got taken by someone once whole long story see Billy Elliot which I not my kind of film should we say I was bored throughout it but then at the end when he makes his professional debut he pirouettes out onto stage leaps up in the air he sort of pauses freezes yeah, a bit like a musical youth used to jump up but <laughs> Not as good. But, and then he sort of went like a bright white, like a supernova. And then went, boom, and disappeared off the screen. And all these people, like, you know, in floods of tears, and bursting out laughing. <laughs> he exploded. It was, he blew up. It wasn't Matthew Waterhouse, was it? Yeah. It sounds like Adric's imagination, yeah. Doctor Who. It is odd how, you know, these things can just disappear completely, you know. There's very few things, apart from everything I've chosen today, apparently, (laughs) that are that far off the radar that nobody even mentions them. It is very, very odd how things can be everywhere one minute and then gone. And talking of things that are disappearing, (laughs) this brings us on to your next choice. Two different versions of a track by Nick Drake. I was born to love no one, no one to love me, only the wind in the long green grass, the frost in a broken tree. I was made to love magic, all its wonder to know. But you all lost that magic Many, many, many years ago Okay, Tim, that was Nick Drake And that was an extract from I Was Made to Love Magic Would you like to explain a bit more about that one, please? Yes, I bloody well would <laughs> That was I Was Made to Love Magic Not Magic, which probably a lot of people are more familiar with Now the story behind this was Obviously Nick Drake wasn't around very long, he didn't record very much. And there were his three albums, were all that were available, and the stuff from the unfinished 1974 album. I think that had been on the box set previously, but in the mid-80s, when they all started to come out on CD, there was a CD put together called Time of No Reply, which was things like there were some outtakes from mainly from the first album, a couple of home demos, those four tracks from the last album... What's interesting about the first album outtakes is that they try a couple of different things with him. There's one with kind of a full band doing a different version of Thoughts of Mary Jane. There's different kind of tones of performance. But there's this, I Was Made to Love Magic, which is done with a different arranger. A guy called Robert Hewson, who was later, he was the raw band who did the crunch and clouds across the moon. But in the 60s, he was trying his hand at being an arranger. He was paired up with Nick Drake. It didn't really work out because he was... Kind of going down the same route as you can name as people like Donovan, rather than the, the sort of jazzy orchestral sound Nick Drake eventually went for. It was shelved 
But it was the only recording of I Was Made to Love Magic. So it ended up on Time of No Reply, the album, which for years and years and years was accepted as a Nick Drake album. You know, everyone had it. I think I listened to it as much as listened to the three regular albums. If I'm honest, I might listen to it a bit more than listen to Pink Moon because that's not an easy listen, really. But when there were sort of finally proper remasters and repackaging of his albums with his family's involvement, which is why I'm being careful not to criticise this because it's people trying to do their best by him and they do appreciate that. But there was kind of a new version of Time and No Reply was put together called Made to Love Magic. Not I Was Made to Love Magic, but on it, I Was Made to Love Magic became magic. And somehow using technology, don't ask me how they did it, they took the original arrangement off because obviously on the only surviving recording that was effectively burnt into the recording. They somehow removed it, replaced it with an arrangement by Robert Kirby, who was the regular arranger, turned it into no i like it not many people do but turned into a very different song much darker and more mysterious than this sort of mock tudor <laughs> sing-along almost with a seems to threaten to turn into farmer barley mo's tune from bored at some point but that original version has been erased from history and i can understand why people representing his music chose to do that but to leave it out completely is just i think it's unfair i think it yeah, they could have bought a single and put it as a B-side or something. But what's worse is fans now say, oh, well, it wasn't proper because it wasn't what he wanted to do. I'm sorry. It's part of his recorded history as much as any of the other abandoned attempts were. And it should still be available. It can't be there one minute and then as if it didn't exist the next. Because sometimes the, the misfires... You know, when people didn't quite get it right. The most interesting part of the discography. I mean, there are some things on the Beatles anthology that are more interesting than what did turn up on the early albums. You know, a controversial point of view, but I do think that. Sometimes it's it's more interesting to have this stuff and have an idea of how things things came together. I think there's that kind of revisionist history there. And you can understand why the family and the custodians of of the, the library would have wanted to do that to sort of fashion something that might have been more in line with the other material. Oh, it's more like a proper album, that, and, definitely. And, yeah. and, and in line with Nick Drake's wishes or whatever. But as you say, it was Houston who did that arrangement, and mm. I think Nick Drake was involved in that recording. So that is the authentic recording. And whether it's it's preferred or not, it still has the right mm. to exist as part yeah. of that library. By all means, have a revised version, but mm. don't discount the original. Well, that's what gets my goat the most, is the, the fans and the critics trying to justify it. You don't need to justify it. It's a decision that's been made, and you either agree with it or you don't. It's a piece of music. It's not vital philosophy for the world's survival. But it's it does seem to happen all the time. I mean, the one that really gets me is there's a kind of... seems to be a feeling now that the original single version of Elephant Stone by the Stone Roses, which is the top ten hit, admittedly when it was reissued, it's in the top ten, People now say, "Oh well, that wasn't that wasn't the proper one. The twelve inch was now the twelve inch is more like what they did later. The seven inch version is a bit more, bit more like a disco record, really. Not you know, kind of three degrees disco, <laughs> but you know, sort of hard funk wah wah stuff. Mean, yeah. But that has been kind of derided to the extent it wasn't even on the twentieth anniversary box set, which is absolutely crazy. You know, it was it was a hit. It was all over the radio. Lots of people bought it and owned it." I think I can remember putting on the tape for you way back when. Yeah. So it should be out there. And like like I say with the Nick Drake thing, yeah, it was recording that didn't work out, didn't quite get it right. But you look at Tim Buckley's first album where he's got a full band, the better versions of all those songs on later live albums when he gets to do them himself with his 
think, four-piece ensemble at that point. But that first album was still there, still available. Jake Thackeray had a couple of things where he tried albums that weren't working, where they're now available. People say, oh, his first album shouldn't have had all those strings on it. Well, there's a version without the strings, which you can now have. I prefer the one with the strings. But I'm not somebody who waves my fist at the sky that every last bit of recorded detritus isn't available. I'm quite happy that they edit down the studio footage on Doctor Who DVDs, for example, because you you would lose the will to live after seeing Tom Baker staring at the wall for 20 minutes waiting to do a take on Shard. But within reason, if there's a good enough reason for this stuff to be able, it should be. And I think the thing is, just to kind of wrap this bit up, I guess, is that it's a curated decision. So if somebody's made a decision that that won't be that won't be available in favour of something else rather than the two coexist. And it's not even as if there's a legal reason why the original couldn't be released because obviously mm. there's the story of Rise of the Time by Black Box is that the version everybody hears now isn't the original. It's a version of where the, rather than having the letter hollowly samples, it's actually re-recorded by um, Heather Small. Well, I, did, I didn't know that. No. And I didn't see it recently, but, but actually this happened within weeks of the single being mm. successful. There was a court action, the original version was pulled, it was re-recorded and repressed, and that original mix is very difficult to come mm. across now because of the legal issues. But it's not even that. Somebody's made the decision to say, well, that one's better than that one, almost, because... It has Robert Kirby's orchestrations yeah. on it. Therefore, it's more fitting with the rest of the Uber. Mm. So I, I'm with you. I, why can't you have both? Well, it's, I'm fine with people saying this is the official version, but give us the choice as well. That's all, that's all I'm saying. But more, more than that, I'm saying, don't come up with stupid justifications <laughs> for it. Sorry, that was more of a rant than the remembering. Yeah. Buy Nick Drake records, kids. We'll be on top of the pops before you know it. Welcome to Rant's Familiar. <laughs> okay, so with your next choice, Tim, we're going to go back to school. What with baby? masters taking the mikey out of swats keeping up with your own and everyone else's love lives farndale comprehensive can be a pretty exhausting place a wise cracking fifth former gives us a tour of the school's graffiti there's a story behind each scrawled message right tim would you like to tell us what that was please that was again former guest darrell mcclain reading out a bit of the back cover of a book called secrets in the school underground which was one of those books i remember there would be books would come out where they would just run through the playground like a virus. You know, everyone would say, have you read X and Y? There were quite a few, remember, the things like Teenage Health Freak, a couple of things like Weirdly the World According to Smith and Jones, which is their <laughs> flop ITV series. Remember the book of that being sort of playground contraband for a while, the spitting image book, of course. But this was one, because there were quite a few paperbacks. There was one that used to come around every couple of years called Galask Alice, where it was purportedly... The Diary of a Real Life Drug Addict. And apparently, so my friends with teenage kids are telling me, they're finding it on their bookshelves <laughs> now. That never goes away. But this completely went away. This was, I think it was from 1988. It was written by Pete Johnson, who's since gone on to... He's had a really successful career writing teen thrillers and horrors. And he actually wrote a radio serial that Ros Ballinger chose when she was on here, Waiting for Aliens. But... This was completely unlike all of this. It was supposedly the diary of a schoolboy called... I can't remember his surname, but he was called Greg, but people called him Jugger because his ears were prominent. And it was him basically... It was basically a salacious diary of all the stuff that happened in school. I mean, this all sounds quite nasty. Well, I remember finding it quite a depressing book at the time, but, you know, you had to read it because I was a teenager rite of passage. But there's something about some graffiti that said Denise is the biggest slag in High Wycombe and they tried to find out who Denise was. There was a boy in school that they bullied called Reuben where they had porn mags in his bag. It's all quite unpleasant stuff, really. There's a chapter where he gets... 
ripped off by some prostitutes when he goes on a sneaky solo visit to London. And the, the bit that I hated the most as a youngster, though, you'll see why in a minute. He ends one of his diary entries by saying, and now for something completely different. I've just discovered Monty Python. It's nearly as funny as the weather forecast. Now, this was around the time they were repeating Series 3 of Monty Python on BBC One, so... I was discovering it around then. I was not thinking, lol, this is almost as funny as the weather. Now, the weather forecast isn't funny anyway, particularly when you think of some things that happened in the weather forecast around that time. Absolutely. You know, not really a laughing matter, but I was thinking, that is really funny, the way they switch between the studio and film and argue about it and things like that. I was not thinking, (laughs) (laughs) this this is well random, you know. (laughs) That really annoyed me. But the whole book... It sort of disappeared into the ether. In fact, I couldn't find the cover that I remember online, which is a kind of 2000 AD strip type drawing of two schoolboys, one of whom is presumably Jugger, leaning against a wall in a kind of, ah, we're all mates. Do you know what it looked like, actually? The opening credits of Hardwick House when Slasher's gang are leaning against the wall. That hasn't struck me before now. I'm sure yeah. it's copy from that, but I'm still desperate to see the rest of Hardwick House. I'm sure everyone listening knows the story behind that. I am not desperate to read Secrets from the School Underground again. It's a funny one, it's because there were quite a number of sort of school and teenage-based books around the time which were kind of almost pushing new boundaries. Mm. I'd never heard of this one, I must admit, and I was tempted to order it in, in advance of this um, recording <laughs> to read it. And I've saved of, you one pence on well, Amazon. <laughs> well, you've saved one pence on Amazon. You know, I was holding out for the Jack and Ori live-action version, but maybe that won't happen as well. But it does sound fascinating, and I think it was kind of a prelude to some of the books that came later because I think certainly sort of in the early 2000s there were a number of books which were kind of criticising the press for sort of revealing the dark side of being a teenager and I think this was quite clearly almost ahead of its time and which is maybe one reason why it didn't maybe didn't take off the way it did or mm. it's been forgotten or crucially hasn't been reprinted perhaps because it was quite controversial and dark in tone. Well and also like I say I found it I found it quite bleak and depressing. I didn't find it that funny. And I found him annoying as a lead character. He wasn't what I wanted to see in a book. I think I've read Three Men in a Boat by that point. I was, I was a bit happier with, you know, sort of toffs arguing about wallpaper, <laughs> riding a coracle down the river than I was with this obnoxious kid. It's that whole thing about, you know, the teenage thing of trying to pretend you've had more experience of the world than you have. But this was as if it had actually happened to him. And I found that quite nauseating because quite often you hear claims of people in school and thought, yeah, you haven't done that, have you? You haven't tried weed. You know, you didn't get drunk in the park with your mates. I can tell just from your face. But this book was like, he tried it all, he'd done it all. That's not something I want to read about. It sounds quite nihilistic in some ways. You know, quite sort of, maybe not up there with Fred's mm. for depression. Yeah. But it certainly um, does sound quite bleak. I mean, that's the key word you've used, bleak. And I think sometimes that's mm. quite a difficult thing to engage with, the bleakness mm. because of the utter lack of hope. Well, something that didn't occur to me until recently was, I think part of the reason it seemed so bleak was the school underground was a wall where everyone wrote graffiti on with all the latest exploits. And it was just after Grange Hill had done the Speaking Wall storyline. That's my era of Grange Hill. And that fired off in a number of directions. It had comic consequences. Sometimes it had, 
you know, scandalous consequences like ever Faye Lucas having the third teacher and somebody wrote about it on there. It led to the the two walled up ghost hoaxes that Gonch did. <laughs> That's how you do it. You reflect all well, say all human life, all school life in it. Because not everyone not everyone's experience of school is like a bad episode of Murphy's mob. Some people have a laugh throughout it, you know. Certainly, I I don't remember finding school that harrowing or bleak or, you know, running into many prostitutes who ripped me off. Don't say that came later. (laughs) (laughs) I can see your face. (laughs) I'm trying not to comment on that one. But like I say, it's really stayed with me, this, because it was essential. You had to have read it and then... Nobody remembers it. But clearly it's had a lasting effect on you in the sense that it's bleak and you wouldn't even revisit it for nostalgic purposes. Well, look, right, I've got all kinds of rubbish paperbacks. I've even got the novel of The New Statesman, the, <laughs> the Ring Hale sitcom, which is it's an attempt to do. It's not actually that funny. It's sending up the Jeffrey Archer novels, but oh, it's right. based on series <laughs> one. And I've got, you know, all kinds of bizarre 60s sci-fi and soft porn and so on. I do not still have secrets from the school underground. I've no intention of getting it. <laughs> and there, listeners, that is that. Okay, well, it wouldn't be a discussion with Tim Worthington if we didn't touch upon something to do with psychedelia. But we're not going to go to 60s or even 70s psychedelia now. We're going to go to something a bit more recent. Children of man, be not afraid. This is the voice of Skyman. I come in peace to observe your world and to check the eligibility for England cricket selection. As you monitor my emissions, I am orbiting 100 miles above you, and my craft is just visible through your Earth telescopes. Have a butcher's look. Mine's the one with the go-faster stripes and rear spoiler. What on earth, if that's the right phrase to use, <laughs> was that? It's very much not on earth. That's a bit of Skyman, which is a completely forgotten. I mean, I'll be honest about this. When I was writing Fun at One, History of Comedy on Radio 1, I initially, you know, I hadn't forgotten about this programme, but I forgot it on my initial list of programmes. It's quite telling because there's a whole chapter about this guy. It's Mark Radcliffe. And when he first came to Radio 1, they tried him out on a couple of different things. He had a documentary series called Manchester So Much to Answer For. He did a lot of things on Radio 5, like Cult Radio and Hit the North. I think he presented the guest list, which was Radio 1's art show for a while. But his main thing was, he had a show on Monday nights called Out on Blue Six, which was, in his words, it was he tried to join the dots between, in inverted commas, indie music of the past and now. So you get, say, like a 50s rockabilly record and a 60s psych thing and then Primal Scream and then, you know, back to David Bowie, whatever. If he could link them, he would. And he linked them with funny gags, sort of train spottery, record collecting gags as well. I remember laughing for a long time about he played... I can't remember who it was. It was, it was a band from Factory Records, from the early days of Factory Records. And he mentioned that he bought that album when he was a student and then realised he had no rent money. Said so when the landlord came round to kill and at him, and then he played the next record. But for about I think it was eight weeks, but before I was on Blue Six, so they used to have that was nine to ten. But before that, in the eight to nine slot, they used to have two half hour programs on Radio One. It varied between what they were. There were things like there was the Antiques Record Roadshow, which is where they just went round record fairs. People like Mark Kermo picking out records and saying, "Oh yeah, I like this because it's interesting." <laughs> and then there were things like there was Loud and Proud, which just the the gay magazine program in the early nineties. Completely forgotten about that, you know, that Radio One with that head of the game. 
But they gave Mark Radcliffe an extra half hour with Skyman, where he played sort of outer space theme records. And when there's outer space theme records, it wasn't just a theme from Close Encounters disco version by the Jeff Wolf Orchestra. It was, you know, everything from the kind of 50s space race, skiffle records, up to things like reggae songs, like whatever was it, Max Romeo that was sampled in Outer Space by the Prodigy, but I remember playing the original of that, actually when Outer Space was out. And Outer Space Girl by Beloved on the, one of the episodes I've heard. Yes, yeah. I Married the Monster from Outer Space by John Cooper Clark. It was like, like Out on Blue Six, but in space. And he linked it in character as an alien who tuned into Radio 1 from his UFO with an unusual treated voice. And it was really exciting because I didn't know that much about Mark Radcliffe at that point. I just knew he was somebody funny on the radio who knew an incredible amount about music that wasn't just whatever was in the top ten at that point. So, I don't know, Snap and Technotronic. You know, he seemed to have this real knowledge but wasn't precious about it. He liked to make fun of it. You know, I'm sure he would have made jokes about some of those new trade tracks if he played Mars on Blue Sixers, I'm sure he did. He had 90 minutes of this new talent, more or less being allowed to do whatever he wanted. And I've got such fond memory to Skyman because of that. I used to hurry home from, if I went out after sixth form college, I used to make sure I was at home in time for Skyman and I was on Blue Six. And I would, 90 minutes as well, you get a C90, you can listen to them both all week. All this great new music and these funny gags just on demand. I think the thing, when I've listened to it, I think it is quite a startling listen, actually. And it, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's um, it's a really clever idea. It's cleverly done. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of a radio version of late 60s Saturday morning show Zocco. Yes, that's of, exactly uh, it, yes. In terms of just the kind of billiard ball-like pinging from this yeah. back to the other, although it was obviously within the, the theme of space. But mm. it's actually, I made the reference before, psychedelic. I, I use that maybe a little bit loosely but there was that sense of that it's a genuinely unusual experience listening to that show it's disorientating it takes in so many different aspects of the subject matter and actually in some ways tipped its hat to what the Chris Morris was doing and would later do yeah. as well from somebody who now you probably wouldn't expect them or they wouldn't yeah. be regarded as doing that kind of experimental radio well yeah it isn't like anything you expect from Radio 1 and it's funny you should mention Blue Jam because Chris Morris did tell me that Out on Blue 6 and Skyman were a huge influence on what later became Blue Jam he was a really big fan of both of those shows and I'm not surprised by that really because they stood out amongst everything else that was on the radio at that point. And, you know, you only had the choice of the five BBC stations or you an independent local radio station, but it wasn't like there wasn't good stuff on all of them. But this was real appointment radio. What great records are we going to find out about from this? And there are still some Out on Blue Sixes I've got somewhere where I sent in requests and my name's actually on them <laughs> that I never got. I kept asking for, this is going to make you laugh, Tarot by Andrew Bound, <laughs> The Remace of Wands, which is a, a single we were obsessed with trying we to track down around that. You couldn't find it anywhere. And the thing was, at that point, it was just listed for about £4 in the record collecting rare record price guide. It's now about £4,000, but we just didn't find it. Yeah. But I kept writing into things saying, can you play it, please? So we could at least have taped it off the radio. But that was the one thing that I never got played on either Out on Blue Six or Skyman. So it wouldn't really fit it on Skyman, to be honest. Did Apart from The Beautiful People, the episode with the, the aliens. Yeah. Did he play um, Clouds Across the Moon? And a little hark back to what we were talking about before. There was at least one where there was like a kind of monologue over the second half of Clouds Across the Moon from the 12-inch, yeah, where yeah. they go into like, that wine bar funk bit. 
because it was all kind of Skyman delivering his reports on you know yeah, the, yeah. the behaviour of humans and you know human society and it was quite funny to hear these jokes delivered against <laughs> this uh, <laughs> cheesy 80s backing yeah, well I mean I hadn't really heard much about Skyman until mm. you raising obviously I, I was able to check it out online so I would certainly echo Tim's sentiments there to say that you know it's a really interesting listen get it on Radio 4 Extra if you're listening Ian Radio 4 Extra <laughs> yeah and play Tarot by Andrew Brown what he heard <laughs> as well I do that all day every day <laughs> so the final item Tim for me I just think this is an exploration into vindication but the king wasn't going to have any peace he had been seen by the queen Rufus I must have a word with you. A serious situation has developed since breakfast, and I'm very worried. Really? You remember that your cousin, King Boris of Borsovia, is coming to stay with us on Thursday night? Oh, yes. Well, Mr. Gelati of the Gelati String Quartet has hurt his finger in a mousetrap. We really must amuse Boris, so find something else. Oh, but oh, my dear, I... I want no excuses. Do something, Rufus. The king thought and thought. And thought and thought and thought. But no ideas came. Okay, Tim, so would you like to explain that? And then maybe I'm, I'm sure you'll explain why I used the phrase vindication. That is a clip from Rubovia. I believe it's written from 1976. It's a programme by Gordon Murray, who made Campbell Green, Trumpton and Chigley. Obviously, it's a couple of years later, and he does some of the narration. It's obviously still got Freddie Phillips doing the music. Brian Cantor wasn't part of the equation by then. I just remembered it really clearly, because in my head, as a youngster watching this, because it was in the Watching Mother slot at lunchtime, I remember Cambuk Green, Trumpton, Chigley, Rubovia. It's the same puppets, same music. Different setup, obviously, because it's in kind of a medieval magical castle, and I think think they for the most part have moving mouths which the other puppets never did it's slightly different visually slightly different approach a lot more humor in it apparently it was originally made for the the afternoon children's schedule but ended up there for some reason because it was supposed to be like a comedy program i remembered it really well i had a board game of it we did have a jigsaw of it at one point i don't know what happened to that and i've now got one of the storybooks which i got from ebay years later the thing was, nobody else remembered it. Not just that. Nobody believed me about it. People kept saying, you sure you don't mean Clopper Castle? No, I didn't because I remember Clopper Castle <laughs> and I know what that was. It was not that. People just suggested in all kinds of ways that we're getting mixed up. I was confused. I've made it up. Danny Baker once accused me on Radio 1 of having made it up. So yeah, cheers for that. And endlessly went on and on and on until one day, somehow, I found a Radio Times listing because that was really weird. I could never find it in old copies of Radio Times and I'm not sure why it was so elusive but then one day it did and it was just I have, I have proof at last I have proof <laughs> and I paid to get a photocopy of that page went around showing it to people even since then I've scarcely met anyone who really remembers it it's funny this I mean dear listeners I can vouch for what Tim has said there and I remember when Tim would talk about Rubovia and whilst I personally didn't remember it just the sheer passion of Tim's argument and his belief 
and the fact that I knew Tim so well. I was probably one of the few who did believe him, although I didn't remember it. But I do also remember many people getting quite angry about it. And Inexplicably, thinking, yeah. Thinking that, that you, Tim, were, were trying to put a fast one on them. And I remember certainly one of our close friends at the time was just so passionate in his response they're basically saying, you're lying, you're totally wrong, you're off your rocker. So I personally was delighted <laughs> when Tim phoned me to say, I've got proof, I've found it. <laughs> and then, I mean, he effectively did go running around with this photo, this blurry photocopy. That's my life, of, listeners. Of a, <laughs> you know, of a page in the Radio Times. But for me, I just thought, all credit to Tim there, because Tim never gave up, he never doubted himself in the face of all this opposition. And that's why I used the word vindication before, because it took quite some years to actually get that proof and be able to demonstrate that. But hell, you got that vindication. Well, again, it is so weird about something just disappearing. This was so woven into my early childhood. Like I say, we had the game. I remember us yeah. playing it as kids. There was a family down the road where the youngest, I think she must have been about 18 months, was called Caroline. And the queen in Rubobi was called Queen Caroline. And everyone used to call her Queen Caroline. It was quite a big thing for me. And then, you know... In those days when kids' programmes went off, that was it. And they're almost yeah. like they hadn't existed. I mean, Ragtime, I remember watching a lot. I've got very fragmentary memories of that now because that, I think, was last shown in 1981, maybe. But, you know, there was nothing beyond that to remind you of it. So I can understand that Rubovia would have dropped to people's radar, but not to that extent. It's funny now because, obviously, with the passage of time and with, with the, obviously, the amazement of the internet, there are some more references to Rubovia out mm. there, in particular photos, behind-the-scenes photos, etc. But there still isn't an awful lot of material out no, there, is there? There's, there's a lot of stuff about because originally it was based on the 50s series. That's right, yeah. Which is more or less, some characters are different, but there's a lot about the 50s version. Not much about the 70s one. There's a couple of articles, one by me. There's some scans of the storybooks, things like that, but there's still not much discussion of it, you know. No, no, and certainly episodes haven't emerged online, they haven't been released on DVD, have they? No, no. I think that's because, as far as I know, they only exist on film, and they would have to be, you know, transferred and is the cost of transferring Rubovia to make it available really cost effective I'm not sure because yeah. you know there's a the market of one let's be honest about it it's not it's not going to be a million seller well to be honest we know at least 30 people who go into HMV standing in front of a rack of Rubovia DVDs and still deny it existed <laughs> It's a lie! That's yeah. reminded me of just as a, a slight diversion. Do you remember the days when, talking about videos in HMV, there used to be, you know, uh, they would have a bank of monitors hanging from the ceiling. I think three, showing something that just come out. And every so often there'd be something on it. Everyone would stop and watch it. Like, remember when the young ones came out on VHS? I think it was actually with you at the time in HME. We were all just standing watching the young ones. Remember that <laughs> police stop people? Well, not the police, but people stopped and looked at it. It's easy to forget that now in an age where everything is so available, whether it's yeah. legally or not, or YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Is that, and it goes back to what you said before, once something is shown or played on a radio mm. show, if you hadn't recorded it, it was gone. It would disappear. And now, if you say it's hard enough, as long as it's not, there were three men in the boat and <laughs> it's not Rubovia, then you're likely to find it. Nearly everything has 
leaked out online in some way. You know, there's even, I believe, episodes of Ski Boy floating around now. My goodness me, how did they get out there? But, you know, some things are still just that bit off the radar. And will we ever see them again? Which brings me round to something we sneaked in at the end because we had no way of identifying this at all. A film that... Now, I'm sure a lot of people listening remember Sat 1, the German satellite channel from when cable TV first appeared that showed a lot of interesting films on a Saturday night. There were sometimes some of the video nasties were on there. There were all the dodgy soft porn things like Skull Madcam Report and, you know, things like that. But there was a film that I never made a note of the name of, which I saw a couple of times, which is a, an early 70s action stroke sex comedy thing about three women who stole a speedboat. The only clue that I've got to it was one of them looked like Rosanna Yanni, who was in a lot of the Italian psychedelic detective films, so I'm assuming it was Italian. Don't know what it was called. I have half of it on VHS somewhere with a sat one dog in the corner. I don't know where that tape is now. I've just no way of knowing or finding out what it was called, which is bizarre because it's a film I've seen several <laughs> times. It's not much more that I can say to that apart from, isn't it sad that we don't have this kind of weird stuff on TV on a Saturday <laughs> night anymore? I'd certainly argue that one. If anybody, if anybody does know and can put Tim out of his misery, then we'd love <laughs> to hear from you. Okay then, well that wraps up this episode that looks unfamiliar. Thank you Tim for trusting me with the chat. Thank you for being a great one. host. Yeah. I'd generally like to thank you for um, you know, obviously all the, all the episodes and of Looks Unfamiliar you've done now. I think I'm sure many people will agree they are all a great listen. It's just great that you bring all these people together to talk about these subjects that nobody else talks about and you do it in your own inimitable style. So thank you very much for that one. And finally, I'd just like to wish you all the best with the new book. Thank Can't you very help much. Thinking About Me, which is a brilliant title. Very apt. <laughs> but wish you all the best for that one. I, I think it's going to do really well for you. Thank you very much. And for that, I'm going to give you the choice on what clip we play out on. It's got to be Johnny Griggs, if you go away. Local version of El Dorado. You brought this upon yourself. El Dorado is only golden <laughs> dreams. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Thinking About Me by Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.